Where the long range weapon or suicide bomb, a wicked mind is a weapon of mass destruction. Whether you're Solar Sun or BBC One, this information is a weapon of mass destruction. You could a Caucasian or a poor Asian. Racism is a weapon of mass destruction. Whether inflation or globalization, fear is a weapon of mass destruction. My dad came into my room holding his hat. I knew he was leaving. He sat on my bed, told me some facts, son. I have a duty calling on me. You and your sister be brave, my little soldier. And don't forget all I told you. You're the mister of the house now, remember this. And when you wake up in the morning, give your mama a kiss. Then I had to say goodbye. In the morning, woke mama with a kiss on each eyelid. Even though I'm only a kid, certain things can't be hit. Mama grabbed me, held me like I was made to go, but left her in the store as untold. I said, Mama, it'll be alright when Daddy comes home tonight. Whether long range weapon or suicide bomb, a wicked mind is a weapon of mass destruction. Whether you're Solar World Sun or BBC One, this information is a weapon of mass destruction. You could have Caucasian or a poor Asian. Racism is a weapon of mass destruction. Whether inflation or globalization, fear is a weapon of mass destruction. Whether Halliburton and Run or anyone greed is a weapon of mass destruction. We need to find Courage, overcome inaction is a weapon of mass destruction. Inaction is a weapon of mass destruction. Inaction is a weapon of mass destruction. My story stops here. Let's be clear, this scenario is happening everywhere. And you ain't going to Nirvana or Farvana. You coming right back here to live out your karma with even more drama than previously. <laughs> Seriously. Just how many centuries have we been waiting for someone else to make us free? And we refuse to see that people overseas suffer just like we. Bad leadership and egos unfettered and free. To feed on the people they're supposed to lead. I don't need the people to pray and wait for the Lord to make it all straight. There's only now I do it right. Cause I don't want your daddy leaving home tonight. Whether long-range weapon or suicide bomb, a wicked mind is a weapon of mass destruction. Whether you're Solar Waste Sun or BBC One, this information is a weapon of mass destruction. You could have Caucasian or a poor Asian. Racism is a weapon of mass destruction. Whether inflation or globalization, fear is a weapon of mass destruction. Whether Halliburton and Run or anyone greed is a weapon of mass destruction. We need to find Courage, overcome inaction is a weapon of mass destruction. Inaction is a weapon of mass destruction. Inaction is a weapon of mass destruction. Hello, and welcome to the weekly review. This is Roman. It's Friday, December 8th, 2017. Thank you so much for listening. We are broadcasting live from Mutiny Radio here in the Mission District in San Francisco. Hope all the listeners out there that you're having an okay day at whatever time you're listening to this. It might be now on Friday as I'm speaking these words. It might be later. I'm sending you lots of love and positive energy. We need this. (laughs) We definitely need this. 
Um, trigger warning, it's a news program, so we'll be talking about uh, the rise in fascism in this country and in the world. We'll be going over some news stories, and also some positive news stories. And the positive news stories come when folks take action and fight back. So the previous song I played is one of my favorite songs of all time by a band called Faithless, and it's called Mass Destruction. And the different types of mass destruction there are, and systemic destruction, and very crucial to think about, and that song still quite valid. And before that, a song by the Orwells, which does, inc- does encourage uh, flag burning, so I had to play it. A song called Who Needs You. Good lyrics there. Good rock song. Also be playing some good music throughout the show. Po- music makes me feel better. Hopefully it makes you feel better, too. It's one of these uplifting things. There are a lot of uplifting things. We just have to find it, and at times it feels like insurmountable. And I, when I'm off Facebook and off social media, I feel happier, more calm, more at peace. And then occasionally I log in and I'm like, oh, this this is terrible. Oh, they're doing this to the wildlife. They're doing this to the environment. They're doing this to people. <laughs> and it seems like these attacks are coming very quickly. Um, and they are coming to a lot of places. And I also want to acknowledge that these attacks have been happening for a while. So while there is an increase in it, and it's maybe more direct and they're more overt in their attacks, it's not like things suddenly got bad in 2016 or after the inauguration. Things in some ways perhaps got worse and more direct. And it wasn't like there weren't, like, I don't know the exact number. There were a hell of a lot of deportations under Obama's administration. So we need to address that. And perhaps if folks had been (sighs) listened to activists and folks were speaking up then, we might not be at where we're at now. And that, of course, goes back to previous. And I don't want to sound like, oh, I'm shaking. I am kind of waving my finger. You can't see me right now. I am kind of waving my finger. Because a lot of these, the problems right now are really systemic. And folks have been fighting against this for centuries. And I think perhaps it's human nature. I don't know what it is. This idea that, oh, if it's not affecting me or my family, I can look the other way. If I'm comfortable or if I'm secure enough it doesn't affect me and I don't have to act on it. And, or I'll just be a bootlicker like Mark Zuckerberg. Uh, on Mondays, I've been sitting in for DJ Asik for Heterotopia here at Mutiny from four to six. And I played an excerpt from an interview with a student at University of Michigan. And University of Michigan students are now battling against Richard Spencer, who's wanting to speak at the school and the student body is opposed to it. Folks from Ann Arbor are opposed to it. Yet the administration still is kind of dragging its heels in terms of telling him not to come. And so there's been a lot of direct actions, which is great. And they're interviewing uh, one student, and this student called Mark Zuckerberg a, a bootlicker. And I think that was in terms of Facebook deleting an event that was calling for students to gather and to protest Richard Spencer. And of course, we've seen that on Facebook with the, 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 the real names, quote unquote, real names policy, which is fucked up because it's dangerous for a lot of people. We've seen it with people getting, I know a lot of folks who have been kicked off or suspended for a number of times because they call men scum, which, you know, they are. And, and or there was uh, someone as well talking about white privilege and folks who use this language are sometimes suspended, yet there are, as we heard on the show last week, talking with Zarina Zabriskie and Olga Tomchin, there is a terrible site 
called Jewish Ritual Murders, and people have been reporting it. I reported it, and Facebook still thinks it's okay, and it's a very like anti-Semitic, really gross site. So they allow hate speech on there, yet they don't listen to folks who have less privilege when they speak up about the patriarchy or oppressive forces or white supremacy. And so in that way, Facebook is going along with what's in place right now. And it's difficult, as Facebook can be a valuable way to share information, although sometimes it's censored, and we're totally being tracked. So my whole thinking of this is I, I take breaks every now and then, and I would like to get off at some point, and I've not quite been able to do that yet. The idea behind it, though, is like if they're watching me, might as well share some useful information about how fascistic the government has become. And there's so many examples of this. We can talk a little bit about the Middle East, and there have been big protests in there's protests in DC right now, and in London, there was a live feed earlier. 45 wasn't even wasn't sure what he was talking about, and now there's going to be like massive. Let's talking about make. I mean, I'm. I'll talk about my own perspective. I kind of come from this idea of no borders, no nations. We share the earth. It's as simple as that, and I know that doesn't sound simple because how do we get there? How do we get to this place where everyone is safe and everyone feels welcome? And I feel by getting there, we need to stop embracing this idea of nationalism and border patrols and this idea of who's keeping us safe, because a lot of us don't feel safe here. And how about folks who have been on this land since before us got, we got here? We haven't made it safe for them at all. So it's this idea of security. It's like security for whom? And what does that entail? Does that entail sending millions of people to jail? Does that entail deporting people? Does that entail people living in poverty, which is violent, or paying, not paying people a living wage? What's this idea of security? And for those of us who remember what it was like to fly before 9-11, what it was like to be able to walk with someone up to the gate or to meet them at the gate, aside from the completely intrusive screening from TSA, and I'm sure there was some back in the day as well, it's just gone to this place that it's so far that, and I have kind of accepted it where it's like, Oh, just going to take off my shoes. Going to have them, you know, search me or search my belongings, dust my fingerprints for, I don't know what. And as it becomes normalized, we stop questioning it. And I wonder what we'll tell the next generation. It's already something to be like, Hey, things have gotten worse already in the time since you were born or since the time since you've been able to do this. So how much further can we go? Will we even be allowed to travel? Where will we be allowed to travel? The fucking Supreme Court. Yes, I'm putting that adjective before them, aside from two. <sighs> aside from Ginsburg and Sotomayor, who were the two who voted against the travel ban. They, so now that it's gone into a... They're voting... Oops. It's a nice special effect there when I flip my hand and it hits the microphone stand. Limiting who can travel where, and it's ridiculous. And a person pointed out recently there's some military action happening in Chad, and that's perhaps why Chad was singled out. I don't know much about the region. Uh, as far as international affairs, I feel like I have to kind of really search and find that information and question what I hear. And also what we're being told isn't necessarily helpful. So, we'll see about that. 
<sighs> there's one story I wanted to get to last week, and I am bringing it up, but there's so many other stories to get to. One positive thing, I won't read the whole article, just one, one note, and one can Google it if you would like. The billionaire owner of Patagonia is suing Trump over national monuments, and his quote is, this government is evil. Does he really need to say this government is evil? Sure. Well, more power to you. Sue them away. I mean, there's so many lawsuits. I'm also like, other forms of direct action. Putting that out there in the universe. I know this country is very big into the whole lawsuits, and sometimes it's good. A lot of times it's not good. And how about some other direct actions that we can think of? Brainstorm with me, people. What are some other ways we can squash this administration and i propose this idea and people did show up for the inauguration to protest it and you also can check out hashtag the j20 defendants because there are folks who are on trial it's ridiculous they should not even be on trial in the first place it's disgusting and i've talked about this in previous episodes (sighs) they're trying to quell dissent and it's just sick (sighs) oh yeah so my question is, what would happen if everyone who's opposed to this administration, and that's a lot of people, even, uh, even okay, we won't even say around the world, because around the world, we, we add millions at the very least. Here in this country, though, if everyone who's opposed to this administration were to show up at the White House, what would happen? If we all showed up there at the same time, and we'd have to coordinate this, because it, uh, organizing is difficult. It's very tricky. Everyone has their needs, miscommunication, et cetera, et cetera. If everyone who's opposed to this administration were to show up at the White House at the same time, putting that out there in the universe, what would happen? And I'm also going to throw in, because I'm a game show host right now, I'm going to throw in, or maybe I'm a host on uh, Home Shopping Network. I'm throwing in all the wildlife creatures and animals that are being threatened, too. So all the elephants that they're trying to hunt and kill. Can we get them on? They're on our side. We get them with us. Imagine people riding elephants and just storming, putting that out there. One has to be careful with what they say. I want to get my message across, and let's let's leave it at that. Because there's the idea of free speech, and then free speech for whom, and also who knows how they can pull it and how they can spin it. All I'm saying is that people deserve to live in peace, and if you're opposed to that, you're a fucking fascist. That gets the point across. Ugh. Another story from independent.co.uk. And again, some of these stories we find are from the UK, and there seems to be a lack of... I get that there are you know, folks here who are journalists, and then also who gets to actually talk about what's really happening. So the majority of Democrats just voted with Republicans to kill the Trump impeachment vote. Thanks a lot, Democrats. I don't have faith in them, and yet... Uh, no, just no. Positive news. The B. Arthur Shelter for Homeless LGBTI Youth launches in time for Christmas. I don't care about holidays. I actually fucking hate holidays. However, I'm glad it's launching. I'm going to reread this title to make myself happy because that's what America is about, right? Making yourself happy and not caring about what anyone else thinks. B. Arthur Shelter for Homeless LGBTI Youth launches. Period. That's a good headline. I like that better. Next. Former South Carolina police officer who shot... Walter Scott sentenced to 20 years. And there's an article in the Washington Post, and this is, we don't hear about police officers being held accountable at all, and they often get off. So if this could happen, we should see thousands of these cases of these officers being held accountable. Putting that out there. Putting that out there. Another article. 
And you can also find these. I've posted these on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash weekly rev. And I'll get to reading some longer ones. Park rangers reduce rhino poaching by simply executing poachers on site. There's an idea. I'm scrolling down. Didn't quite get to this one last time. Yep, Supreme Court allows Trump's travel ban to go fully into effect. We spoke about that. That's gross and disgusting. Shame. Also, Supreme Court rejects Texas case on gay marriage benefits. That's also bad news. Uh, On December 12th, coming up, I'm just reading through a lot of things right now. On December 12th, in the Bay Area, there's a J-20 resistors court support and petition delivery. And folks, we are encouraging folks to come out. That's Tuesday, December 12th from 8.30 a.m. at 8.30 a.m. at 850 Bryant Street. So if you are able, please do show up December 12th, 8.30 a.m., the J-20 Resistors Court Support. They need support. Another story. Nazi punks, Nazi, (laughs) Nazi punks fuck off. Antifa drowns out Nazi rally at the White House today. My comment on on this was, can they be drowned out in the White House too? That would be good. Let's set our high goals. And a story I read last week was that German pilots, or on Monday, was that German pilots are refusing to uh, carry out deportations. And this came out in April. That's still positive news. Another story, not so positive, not surprising to a lot of us, almost all transgender employees experience harassment or mistreatment on the job, a new study shows. This is why I personally like to work with trans folks, other trans folks. Makes things easier. It's fucked up. It's really fucked up. (sighs) Moving along, anti-fracking activists and anarchists are blocking rail tracks in Olympia, Washington, and they don't plan on leaving. And there's an article in the Washington Post about that. That came out earlier this week, so you can check that out as well. Um, Ooh. Texas police officer turns on union, exposes cover-up in the Sandra Bland death, and that's on unitedblackbooks.org. You can find that article, and we've also posted it on the Weekly Review webpage. The FBI is investigating people with a kind of Antifa ideology. So if you don't like Nazis, you're being investigated by the FBI. I don't feel safer right now. I'm sure you don't either. Listening to this is probably a... I won't say it out loud. (sighs) Moving along. Japan forces sterilization on transgender people. Not a fan of that. That is not good. Alameda County Superior Court reverses license suspensions for nearly 54,000 drivers who couldn't afford to pay traffic fines. And there's an article in the East Bay Express. Uh, In Vietnam, a blogger was sentenced to prison for reporting on a chemical spill. So around the world, there's a lot of repression. (sighs) Based on uncovering what's happening, especially folks who attack the environment, the corporations and the companies that are, who are attacking the environment. Positive news. Awash in overdoses, Seattle creates safe sites for addicts to inject illegal drugs. And that article is also in the Washington Post. And a few of these articles I read last week. Scrolling down. Here we go. I got it. I oftentimes... It's interesting. I've been doing the show now for... We're at four years, everybody. Four years. Four more years. Four more years of me sitting here and reading the news and getting depressed. Awesome. 
and I, I prepare. It's kind of a, it's a casual environment, as you can tell. I sometimes prepare a little bit more than others, and I like to keep it casual because life you can't you can only plan so much, right? You can't plan for a fascist. You just have to. You can fight back against it and see what we can do. People are talking though, and that's good. It's good for folks to talk about what's happening, and. In The Guardian, this is an article I wanted to get to last time, and this came out on November 28th, so not not too long ago. And the media isn't diverse, and this leads to appalling reporting. And this was written by Stephen W. Thrasher, and I think it's really crucial to read this. And also, this is a media outlet of sorts, and granted, it's DIY, it's you know community-run, and we don't have... I also do want to thank... I mean, we don't have big time sponsors. I am grateful for the folks who support the show. And if you would like to support the show, check out patreon.com slash weekly rev or contact me. Um, always could use more sponsors to help pay for the rentals of the space. Appreciate it greatly. It's my asking. Got to ask for what you need. Okay. So if you have a lot of money, you can kind of tell people what to do and what to say, right? So Unfortunately, a lot of the media that we hear are from very few companies and they're from people already in positions of power and they want to keep this narrative going that keeps people down, keeps people fighting amongst themselves instead of taking down the system, which is if I were to run a media company, that's what I would be like. Hey, I wouldn't even have that be a a, a line. It would be more like, hey, go out and interview people. Because when you hear people's stories, especially people who've had different lives than you, and we've all had different lives than each other, we tend, if we are empathic creatures that tends to grow our compassion tends to grow and we tend to think more about helping each other and understanding other people's positions and even if they're in positions that we we ourselves might not be in that's what i would do if i ran a media company i don't want to run anything though i no ideally if i could would pay artists and reporters and journalists just to go out there and tell people stories have people tell their own stories and have an ever expansive library of human experience. Doesn't seem like we're living in these times though. However, I want to talk about the kind of world I do want to live in and not get bogged down by what's problematic, which is a lot. So I'm going to read this story here on The Guardian and then we'll take a little bit of a music break. Okay. Again, this is from The Guardian. Our racially monolithic media is particularly ill-equipped to cover an increasingly non-white world, as the New York Times profile of a Nazi shows. The well-deserved outcry regarding the New York Times' insufficiently critical profile about a Nazi in the American heartland has exposed a commonly held myth about journalism, that our profession is objective. This is a lie. When a reporter at the American Paper of Record can admit that his story didn't hold up and their editor chose to assign significant resources towards it and published it anyway, journalism is clearly not based on meritocracy or neutrality. Rather, with journalism jobs going to white people 87% of the time in the U.S. and a staggering 94% in Britain, journalism is practically a white people-only club that will reward mediocre white journalists before it will advance excellent journalists of color who can bring needed perspectives. Our racially monolithic mainstream press is particularly ill-equipped to cover an increasingly non-white world when it declares itself to be objective. Like other parts of the society, journalism operates within an ideology which Bell Hooks describes as white supremacist capitalist patriarchy. Through different means, Breitbart and the New York Times can both reinforce this ideology when they write about Nazis. 
But all liberal media outlets, it's not just the Times, are more dangerous in doing this work because they refuse to wrestle with their own subjectivity. When liberal news outlets manage to humanize Nazis, as well as serial killers like cannibal Jeffrey Dahmer, cult leader Charles Manson, and Las Vegas shooter Stephen Paddock, while also being unable to humanize young black men who are killed by police, like Mike Brown, they are subjectively reinforcing the ideology of white supremacist capitalist patriarchy. This same ideology was also at work given how many journalists knew about, but did not chase down or publish the open secret of Harvey Weinstein's many transgressions. Because of the patriarchy that dominates newsrooms, and because of the financial and cultural power of Harvey Weinstein in the media, highly subjective journalists often look to the other way. But while no journalist or news organization is objective, only some of us, usually the disabled, queer, women, and journalists of color among us, are forced to reckon with this reality. And though we are often punished for interrogating our, subject, our subjectivities, white men like Mark Lilla, Jonathan Chait, and Andrew Sullivan are rewarded for pretending like theirs don't exist, even as they shape our national narratives from their subjective point of view. For instance, in January, Lewis Wallace the only out transgender national radio reporter who worked for the public radio show Marketplace wrote a thoughtful essay on Medium called Objectivity is Dead and I'm Okay with It. In it, Wallace wrote, Neutrality is impossible for me, and you should admit that it is for you too, that it matters who is making editorial decisions, that facts are real, but so are priorities and perspective, and that we can check our facts, tell the truth, and hold the line without pretending that there is no ethical basis to the work that we do. When teaching writing classes, I plan, I, I plan to teach this essay, for it gets at the important mission we have as journalists, to interrogate the world and to interrogate the subjectivity in how we are framing stories. But for writing this, Wallace was fired, which was a shame on many levels. At the same time, I will not hold my breath for anything bad to happen to anyone at the New York Times for miserably failing to interrogate their own biases in conceiving and developing that Nazi story. Might the news coverage of Hillary Clinton's campaign have been different if the biases of Mark Halperin and Glenn Thrush, white men with powerful media jobs who both are accused of sexual harassment, had been scrutinized? You can't have nearly all white editorial workforce and have not have it be subjective. Sarah Schulman writes that gentrification is a process that hides the apparatus of domination from the dominant themselves. In the same way, the myth of objectivity has deluded journalists who are white, male, straight, cisgender, able-bodied U.S. citizens into believing they are the neutral point against which all other perspectives are a deviation. And as long as they keep printing puff profiles of Nazis while ignoring so many other important stories, we will all pay the price. Whew, that was good. So again, you can find that at The Guardian. It was written by Stephen Thrasher, and we've also posted it way down on our Facebook weekly review page, and you can find that at facebook.com forward slash weekly review. Well, everyone is minus, you could call me multiply. Just so you know, yes, yes, I'm that guy. You could give my fingers and I'm not waving high. Guess I'm never ending. You could call me pie. But really, how long till the world realize? 
Yes, yes, I'm the best. Fuck what you heard. Anything less is obviously absurd. It is get the bird. More like an eagle. This is my movie. Stay tuned for the sequel. Seems so wrong. Seems so illegal. Set this in the back like a foul ball free throw. Yep, yep, you know that I go. This is me on the regular, so you know. This is me on the regular, so you know. Yep, yep, you know that I go. This is me on the regular, so you know. This is me on the regular, so you know. I come with the tip, with the blow, with the boom. And if you're in my way, there's nothing but doom. Ain't got no time for you ratchet ass goons. And just settle down, listen to my tunes. Ever since I was eight, I was attached to the mic. Wanted a guitar before I wanted a bite. Had an apple phone, talking for sure price. Never seen a song, cause I'm up all night. Really, really? Really, really? You wanna talk shit, but you know that I am really, really to the fullest. You can call me cancer, no multiple choice, cause I'm the only answer. Ain't got no wallet, only use your advance. You know my trick is right, cause there's a mega dance. You wanna get
just a chore well, Our parents say we're dramatic But they always ask for more than we do So fuck you Someone tell me why 
Welcome back to Weekly Review. That was Shamir with Straight Boy. And before that, we heard Shamir with 90s Kids. And before that, On the Regular. I heard On the Regular on The Current, which is a the Minneapolis public radio station. They play a lot of great music. And I wow, was in love. And Shamir has a lot of great videos as well. So, And Shamir will be performing in the Bay Area in San Francisco in February. So mark that on your calendars. I um, hope... I uh, get to go. Hope we can go see Shamir perform. Just really beautiful. Ugh. Ugh. There's a lot of good uh, beauty in the world. So positive things, right? Uh, later on the show, at about 1.15, we'll be um, speaking with Leroy Moore. So looking forward to that. So please do stay tuned. And coming up after our show is Women's Magazine at 2 p.m., followed by the Common Thread Collective at 3. And if folks are interested in having a show of your own here at Mutiny Radio please do check out our website. We have a lot of slots available. Mostly, I think there's a lot on Thursdays, last I heard. And we also have some Saturday evenings that are available for rentals. So with a rental, you can do whatever you want in the in the studio, play music, have a comedy show, have a talk show. Uh, you have a live broadcast. It's recorded. We've got equipment here. So if that's something that is interest, of interest to you, if you like to produce a show or like to try producing a show, not try, do. If you want to produce a show, please be in touch with us. You can email Pam and check out all the shows here. There's a lot of shows here every day of the week at mutinyradio.fm. Yay, Mutiny Radio. Woo woo. Cool. Okay. <laughs> that's my yeah. that's my Mutiny Radio plug of the day. Okay. Getting to some other news stories. How about some local news stories? In Oakland, Oakland city workers strike as talks break down. Mayor calls walkout unlawful. Libby, uh, for folks for folks on the Bay Area, the mayor, Oakland, uh, I mean, mayors, mayors, am I right? If you could see me, I'm doing some hacky stand-up where I'm just like, is this thing on? But mayors, seriously, what are you doing, mayors? I guess that they're, ugh. Libby, Libby Schaff is the mayor of Oakland and <laughs> just, Libby has a lot of, has done a lot of problematic things as mayors do. <sighs> Unlawful. F- 
Libby, I haven't even gotten to the article yet, and I'm already frustrated with Libby. Okay, so this article was written by Kimberly Vecleroff, and it came out on Tuesday, December 5th, and this is an SF gate, and also really wanting to just glad that the you know glad that this information is out there. Okay, so about 3,000 Oakland workers went on strike Tuesday morning. And Ali Erasmus reports, and they have a video as well. I am not going to play the video. I'm going to read the article. Labor unions representing thousands of city workers in Oakland say they will go on strike starting Tuesday, interrupting nearly all non-emergency services with the, excuse me, with the first major walkout in the city in four years after negotiations came to a halt Monday. Mayor Libby Schaff said the strike would be unlawful because the two parties have not mutually declared an impasse. She said the city would file a labor complaint if workers walk off the job. Ah! Ugh, I, ugh, I, uh, <laughs> wow, okay. Uh, but leaders, First Service Employees International Union, Local 1021, dismissed Schaff's concerns. The mayor is incorrect, said Rob, uh, Oh, I'm going to do my best to pronounce this name correctly. Shikowny? It's S-Z-Y-K-O-W-N-Y. Local 1021's chief negotiator. It's an unfair labor practices strike, which is lawful protected activity. A UC Berkeley lecturer in labor law whose Alameda practice represents Local 1021 agreed with the union. And yes, SEIU. That's that's my union. Uh, A public... Sector union has a right to strike in this context because I assume there's no contract in effect and they haven't reached one. That's basic public sector law, said David Rosenfeld, a lecturer. I'm mixing the words up. The lecturer said, I don't know why I feel the need to correct myself. I don't know what the city's problem is. <laughs> Local 1021 represents Oakland librarians, street cleaners, sewer workers, parking enforcement officers, and others. The union proposed Monday to bring in as an informal mediator former uh, to bring in as an informal mediator former San Francisco Mayor Willie Brown. Interesting. A Chronicle columnist who's previously re- refereed referred, refereed, refereed, yeah, refereed BART labor disputes, but the subject rejected that offer. Wow. Willie Brown convened politicians on behalf of the union several months ago, Schaff said, adding that she was disappointed in the union for planning to strike. I love Willie Brown. I have tremendous respect for him, but he does not appear to be neutral in this matter. Libby. The union which has been without a contract since June, agreed with the city's first-year contract proposal, which would increase wages by 4%. I would like that very much. Retroactive to July 1st. Oh, yeah. The parties dispute what should happen next. The city has offered future salary increases tied to its revenue growth, but the union wants the city to commit to another 4% increase the following fiscal year. Had the city agreed on a one-year deal or to Brown as mediator, say, Sikowny said the strike would have been canceled. Karen Boyd, a city spokeswoman, said the city hadn't gotten the opportunity to present the latest proposal to the city council for consideration. The council is scheduled to meet Wednesday, which city officials said was the soonest legally possible time. It baffles me, Sikowny said. Uh, All they have to do is sit in the room in good faith, and it's shocking they wouldn't want to do that. This is uh, is me interjecting here. This is also the, the city that was... 
there were folks who were had set up their own homes in Oakland, and they sent in the city, sent in police, and the, uh, I believe DPW workers to clear this tiny home project and places where people had built their own homes. And then, it, and it, then I'm too angry to even. The city was just like not listening to the people. That's what it comes down to. And this is again, it's the same situation. The city is not listening to the people and being extremely arrogant. Okay, continuing. Other labor conditions over time: part use of part-time workers, retention problems, vacancies, and health and safety concerns are major issues that need to be addressed, according to union members. They say their peers are fleeing Oakland for better paying but identical jobs in nearby cities. We are we were able to get some really good non-economic agreements, but when you get down to money, it really starts to get challenging," said Lauren Takashita, an Oakland Police Administrative Assistant. Uh, excuse me, a Oakland Police Administrative Analyst and member of a sister union, which will also go on strike. It's their role to say no, which they unfortunately are doing very well. It's our role to say why not and how come and be fair we continue to chip away at it and we continue to ask them to be reasonable rising costs of pensions and employee health care are outpacing the city's revenue growth boyd said we cannot spend money we do not have shaft said we have to preserve basic services for oaklanders and not just today not just tomorrow but for the long term i have a suggestion you didn't call on me i wasn't there um perhaps the police budget could take make me take a little bit out of the police budget maybe take some of that out if you're missing that money and I'm sure you're also making a, a decent salary, Libby. That's a suggestion for me. Okay. The city gave Local 1021 its best and final offer Friday and said that if any portion were rejected, the entire proposal would be considered null. Schaff, who has been the target of much of the union's displeasure and its advertising campaign, said Monday night, said Monday night she was still hoping to avoid a strike. This will have an impact on so many Oakland residents, particularly vulnerable residents, she said. We are continuing to ask labor to wait until we have an opportunity to present their offer to the city council. <sighs> Local 1021 members overwhelmingly voted in late October to give its bargaining team the authority to call a strike. Another union, International Federation of Professional and Technologic Technical, excuse me, International Federation of Professional and Technical Engineers, Local 21, approved a solidarity strike. And a third, the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 1245, said its members would not cross the picket line. About 3,000 workers were expected to strike Tuesday starting at 7 a.m. City Council committee meetings were canceled for the week. Nearly all non-emergency city services, child care programs, libraries, senior centers, parking enforcement, fire and building inspections, street sweeping, and more were suspended for Tuesday. Police officers and firefighters are barred from participating in the strike, and emergency dispatchers will come back to work, too. Hmm. I have thoughts about this. The Oakland Animal Shelter and the city's website, including its online bill collection services, will also remain open. Very interesting. So this article is written by Kimberly Vecklerov, and it was on the SF, on SFGate website, and uh, Vecklerov is a SF Chronicle writer. Interesting. Okay, I hope we all learned something from this. I did. I learned a lot. Oh, my, oh, my. Oh, Lord. Okay, coming up next. This is an article that I found through uh, Coalition on Homelessness, and they're an amazing organization. I highly recommend that folks support them. They're also the folks behind the street sheets, and they just do a lot of community engagement and work, while a lot of politicians do a lot of talking and not a lot of help. So... 
there we go. So they posted this article, and it's from WZZM13.com, and we've also posted it, I believe, on our Facebook weekly review page. And the title of the article is, We Asked 100 Homeless People If They'd Rather Sleep Outside or in a Shelter. And the authors are Jeremy Yoyola and Katie Wilcox. And this came out on November 21st, 2017. As she stood by a grocery cart filled with every one of her possessions, 24-year-old Becky Hansen wrapped herself in a blanket. It was beginning to snow. She stared as police and city workers removed tarps and furniture from the sidewalk. Her homeless encampment, a city park just off Broadway and 6th Avenue, was being swept. The city encouraged Becky and others staying in the encampment to go to a shelter that evening, but Becky refused to go. Oh, I don't like shelters, Becky said. My anxiety with new people, especially in large groups, sets me off into major panic attacks. Becky was one of 70 homeless people who told Nine Wants nine wants to Know they'd prefer to sleep outside on the streets of Denver instead of inside one of the city's homeless shelters. In the survey, a vast majority of the people experiencing homelessness who spoke to Nine Wants to Know said they'd rather sleep outside in the cold than in a shelter. The reasons why varied. And they have uh, some photos here and some images. And so they have like... Uh, graphic here of the U.S. Uh, Denver has experienced a dramatic increase in the number of homeless people living on the streets and staying in the, in the shelters. Not all of them are originally from Colorado. Most survey participants told us where they used to live. So 11 are in California, 40 Colorado, 7 Texas, 3 Indiana, and 3 uh, from Montana. The results of our informal survey prompted Nine Wants to Know, and that's the name of the show, uh, to stay at one of the city's largest shelters and review 911 calls from three of Denver's largest shelters in an attempt to verify the reasons given for choosing the streets over shelters. 9 wants to know found that calls to fire, police, and paramedics more than doubled from 2014 to 2016, as the number of homeless in the, in the metro area rose to more than 5,100 people. They were separating men, women, and children. I'm going to say 5,100 people. Denver shelters offer 1,800 beds on any given night. Um, Nine wants to know, walk the streets and parks of Denver asking homeless people a series of questions about the shelters and living on the streets. And a few highlights from the survey. The survey respondents ranged in age from 20 to 74 years old. 21 said they had been homeless for more than 10 years. 40 said they were from Colorado, 35 of whom were from Denver. 70 said they would rather sleep outside than in a shelter, than in the shelter. The reasons for staying out of the shelters varied. 28 said the shelters were not clean or healthy. 20 said they were they are mentally ill or preferred independence. And 15 said safety was their number one concern. At 24, Becky says she has been homeless on and off for most of her life. For weeks, she has been camping along the Cherry Creek Trail off Spear Boulevard between Broadway and Lincoln. Police said during the sweep, they wanted people to seek shelter since temperatures would drop below freezing that night in late October. Becky was defiant. Why go to a shelter that has curfews, rules, and too many people when I can make my own shelter, Becky said. Another man who refused to give his name said he would he would go to a shelter if he could be assured his belongings wouldn't be stolen. If I could get into a place where it was quiet and clean, and a place that I could actually lay my head down and not worry about my stuff getting stolen right underneath my nose, then yeah, I would love to go inside, the man said. I just need a safe awning, somewhere where I don't have to worry about getting a rock thrown at me, a beer bottle busted over my head. 
Safety concerns, worry about thieves and mental health obstacles were the most common reasons why people said they avoid the shelters. Some of them, including Becky, said their PTSD or anxiety keeps them from being around crowds of people in enclosed spaces. The most common complaint against the shelters was cleanliness. 28 people told us they don't use the shelters because they're too dirty. Several complained specifically about bedbugs. The shelters are disgusting, another man told Line Wants to Know. They're full of bedbugs, people with rotten feet, people coughing all night long. The Denver shelters clean on a daily basis, and the Denver Rescue Mission does regular heat treatments to kill off any bedbugs. However, shelter director Tracy Brooks says maintaining a clean, bedbug-free environment can be a battle. You have 300 men in a building over the course of an evening. It may get messy... It may get messy, but again, all of our shelters are cleaned every day, Brooks said. We work hard to stay on top of it. It's a reality of the homeless population. Nine Wants to Know analyzed thousands of 911 calls from the Denver Rescue Mission downtown, the Samaritan House, a women's shelter downtown, and the Salvation Army Shelter since 2014. In all three of the largest shelters, the 911 calls more than doubled in three years. Denver police, fire, and ambulance records show that, on average, 911 received 17 calls per day in 2016 from the Denver Rescue Mission. That's up from about 11 calls per day in 2015 and 8 calls per day on average in 2014. Most of the 911 calls are related to medical issues, including breathing problems, chest pains, and convulsions. At least 392 calls were related to assaults, fights, and sexual assaults in 2016, averaging more than one per day in the Denver Rescue Mission shelters downtown. At the Samaritan House, the women's shelter across the street from the Denver Rescue Mission, 911 calls for service also doubled from 2014 to 2016. After reviewing 911 data and hearing from dozens of homeless people, most of whom said they avoided the shelters altogether, investigative reporter Jeremy Yoyola and photographer Tom Cole decided to stay in one of the city's largest shelters to find out what the experience was really like. Yoyola and Cole chose a warmer night in October when the Denver Rescue Mission was expected to have extra beds available. Yoyola said that there were empty beds, but the room still felt crowded. All the men were told they had to shower before receiving a blanket. Then, each of the nearly 200 men were assigned a bunk. Yoyola saw no signs of bedbugs that night, but the stench was undeniable. There was constant noise but neither Yoyola nor, nor Cole witnessed any violence. Nine wants to know. Ha, Nine wants to know spoke with shelter director Tracy Brooks about our experience staying in the shelter, the results of our informal survey, and the information provided through 911 calls data. The last three years, I liken it to almost a tidal wave, an influx of homeless individuals, Brooks said. We survived the tidal wave. Our heads are bobbing up above the water, and now... We are looking around and seeing, how do we do this better? Last week, the rescue mission opened another shelter with additional 228 beds. But critics say opening another shelter only addresses the symptoms of homelessness and does not decrease the number of people who are unable to support themselves or afford rent or own a home. The key is you have to have a custom program for everybody and address their unique needs, said Robert Marbot a consultant who works with cities across the country to address the causes of homelessness. How about capitalism? I'm going to throw that out there. <sighs> Excuse me. Uh, we have to start throwing out these models that deal with symptoms and start adopting the models that deal with root causes. Marbot said that homeless shelters really can't provide the resources individuals need to improve their situations. It just is not working around the country, Marbot said. 
Brooks with the Denver Rescue Mission sees the shelter rule differently, but admits that even the shelters do not always have the resources to complete the mission. that mission. Ideally, yes, that's the shelter's role to move people out of homelessness. But the reality is, what capacity do you have, Brooks said. When you have so many people coming in, you're looking at what are the basic needs? What do we need to make sure we absolutely do? And that is keep people safe. When it's cold, we make sure nobody is freezing to death and make sure they're fed. Whew. So they have a few more charts here um, in this article. And again, you can check this out at WZZM13.com. Yeah. Ah. Uh, oh, my. So, oof. Yeah. Okay. Taking a, a breath here because there's, there's a lot there. And it's – I'm going to go into the next article here and – yeah, just taking a breath. I mean, it's, you know, we live in a, live on stolen land. And people can't afford even, it's not living wages. Like, all these stories really tie into each other. Folks are striking to get a living wage, and the city won't do that. There are folks are moving in who can play, pay more money. So people are forced out of their homes, even people who have lived. And that's coming from a barrier perspective. And then the city is like, oh, I wonder why this is happening. And it's homeless shelters are just one. It's a, it's a, it's a bandaid. It's a temporary, it's not even a solution. It's a temporary thing. So the root of the problem is, is greed. Oh my, oh my. And this definitely goes into the next story I wanted to read as well. And this came out in July, and wanted to read this. And this comes from everydayfeminism.com. If you've never lived in poverty, stop telling poor people what they should do. Thank you. And this was written by Hannah Brooks Olson. <clears throat> and Hannah says, excuse me, the brownstone I lived in for eight months in 2009 and 2010 had few amenities. The building often smelled like leaking pipes. The carpets were threadbare in many places, and the steam heater in the corner was completely out of my control, resulting in quite a few freezing mornings and sweltering nights. It did, however, have a gas stove and oven, which the landlord had told me was pretty new and worked great. Unfortunately, everything else in the unit was electric, which meant that I'd need to set up separate utility accounts and pay for the gas every month just to turn up, just to run the stove and range. It's like $10 to turn it on and then another $20 to $30 per month, depending on how much you use it, she explained. Yeah, I'm just not going to do that then, I thought, doing the math in my head. At that point, $30 was just a little bit less than my take-home after a day of making lattes, which is what I was doing every day that I wasn't at my public radio internship. The rent, went, the rent on the apartment, which was the least expensive I could find in Seattle, was already going to cost well more than half of my monthly income. With student loan payments to top it off, I barely had living expenses to speak of, and the extra money I'd spent on the gas just didn't seem worth it. This wasn't my first go-around with poverty. We grew up without much money, and I supported myself through college. But after graduation, when the student loan envelopes started showing up, and I had to move out of my inexpensive college town to a city that actually had jobs, the situation was dire, but I knew how to handle it. 
Every month, I'd scrutinize my budget, looking for things to trim or ways to increase my earnings. I moonlit as a cocktail waitress. I considered selling plasma again, but the bus ride to the clinic was too long to fit into my days. I didn't have a car or health care or a stove. I picked up odd jobs on Craigslist, received cash under the table for nights of cocktailing or working as a cater, as a cater waiter. I visited food banks. I never bought clothing. I stopped shaving to save money on razors. Eventually, I was able to get a slightly more lucrative job, began piling on freelance work, and basically never looked back. I am very, very confident that I did everything in my power to provide myself the best life possible as a young adult and that the choices I made were the correct choices. My life now would indicate that that's the case. And still, without fail, when I tell someone or write about that time in my life, I met with a cascade of advice. Well-meaning people who have never been, been poor are convinced that they know what I should have done. That subtle tweaks that subtle tweaks to my budget could somehow stretch my 950 per hour. I should have gotten a roommate. I should have lived somewhere cheaper. I should have found a better job. Anyone who's ever lived in poverty has probably had this experience. In the U.S., we have become so accepting of the fact that poverty is not a symptom of a grossly unequal economy or the result of numerous systemic failures or the product of years of trickle-down economics, but instead that the only thing standing between a poor person and the life of their dreams is their own decisions, their own choices, and their own failures. This is why I would advise any person whose immediate reaction upon hearing about a friend, relative, or stranger on the internet who is living in poverty is to offer unsolicited advice to hold their tongue or fingers at least long enough to consider what other forces contribute to poverty and how their help may actually be insulting, incorrect, and downright damaging. The most common advice doesn't add up. The oversimplification of poverty is often apparent in the advice that gets disseminated by people who have money and companies who make money off of other people's financial predicaments. Earlier this year, an infographic circled around which underscored this fact. Created by a company called Investment Zen, the infographic showed how to build wealth on the minimum wage. Aside from the fact that it contained numerous logistical issues, it used the federal minimum wage, which isn't accurate in most states, either because their wage is higher or lower due to tip crediting. The graphic also seemed to be concerned about moralizing the decisions of poor people and less about actually helping anyone. Advice from the graphic included learning skills on YouTube, only eating in-season produce, and remembering that, quote-unquote, the best things in life are free. You can make excuses or you can do something about it, the graphic chided. It's your choice to make. Twitter instantly took it to task. The response was so heated that it eventually led to one of the men responsible for circulating to issue a retraction, calling many of the criticisms fair. I suspect that the graphic was so easily mocked because the advice it selected seemed was familiar. Despite the myriad systemic reasons that many people live in poverty, there are a handful of tips that well-meaning most of the time folks recycle with alarming regularity. Move somewhere cheaper. Buy in bulk. Get rid of your car get a roommate, eat out less. These changes seem simple. If you just spent less money on groceries, you'd have more money. If you didn't have a car, you could save hundreds on car insurance. But they fail to take into account one crucial element of humanity and existence. The dollar amount of a thing doesn't fully capture the value of it. Most people who live in poverty are working jobs where their income is determined by how many hours they can spend on their job, which often doesn't fail doesn't fall within typical commuting hours, and often run well over 40 hours per week. When you're poor, your time, especially your free time, is extremely precious. 
and many of the prescribed tips for saving money cut into that free time, make it less enjoyable, or might even actively cost more money in the short term. I've written before about the actual cost of moving, renting a truck, putting down a deposit, the financial hit of taking time off work to move, but recommending that someone relocate their entire life to save on rent also neglects to account for the real value of living in a place with a support system. Whether it's family by birth or by choice, living near people you know offers a sense of responsibility in place, not to mention a couch to crash on if you get evicted and the potential for free health for free childcare and other assistance. To illustrate this point, let's use another common tip, giving up a car. Access to transit is one of the single biggest investments that communities can make to help people get out of poverty. But overwhelmingly, transit systems are failing poor people. And for seniors or disabled people, taking the bus may be even more difficult if cities and transit authorities don't accommodate for various mobility, vision, or hearing impairments which means that the cost, both figurative and literal, of giving up a car might be steeper than keeping it, which means that even if a person makes the, the choice to save money by riding the bus, the bus may not be there for them. There's also the issue of time and convenience, particularly if you live in a smaller city, which tend to have much spottier bus service. We can look at it like this. Estimated cost of owning a car over a year, about 725 Wow, that's a lot. I have Wow. Um, about $725 a month, according to the AAA. That's a lot. But compared to riding the bus, because let's assume a person doesn't have the upfront cash for a bike, a lock, and the gear they might need to commute in all weather, it's not, re- it's not really. Where I live, it costs about $5 a day to commute via bus, assuming I'm traveling inside the city and just going to work and back using a single method of transit. Multiply that by five days per week, though most people working minimum wage work more than that, and it's about $100 a month. That's still less than $725 until you account for two hours of commuting compared to 30 minutes of commuting at $13 an hour, $19.50 a day in lost income, or $390 a month. Cost of an extra hour of childcare to account for the commute time at $13 an hour as well is $260 a month. The cost of using the bus for, for weekly grocery trips, which limit the choices a person has and reduces the ability to buy in bulk, another favorite piece of advice for people with means to give poor people, uh, and the occasional other appointment, about $50 a month, which equals $800, and doesn't take into account the fact that grocery shopping by bus is not ideal for someone with kids in tow. Additionally, taking the bus to get groceries makes it less likely that a person can comparison shop, visit multiple, shop, mo- visit multiple stores for ultimate savings, and purchase products that are less easy to carry, like fresh produce or bulk items. You can also see from this example how interconnected so many of these pieces of advice are. Get rid of your car is a fine piece of advice in a vacuum, but when it's coupled with drive for Uber Uber to make extra money, you've now prescribed something that's literally impossible. Spend less on groceries is fine on its own, but if you're also recommending that someone switch to commuting by bike or bus and move to a less dense place with fewer food choices, you've now quadrupled the daily difficulty of their life. And that has a real cost, even if it's not tangible or numeric. This is, this, I think, is truly the, at the heart of the advice we tend to offer poor people. If, implicity, if implicitly <clears throat> excuse me, says that we believe that they should be willing and able to exchange their own time on earth, comfort, happiness, and even physical health and safety just to scrape by. Being poor is really expensive. The assumption that simple advice can dramatically change a person's economic outlook assumes that a person's poverty is slowly the result of personal failings rather than a very real and costly 
rather than ah, rather than very real and costly systems of oppression, including legacy poverty, systemic racism, mass incarceration, punitive immigration policies, medical debt, and more. Regardless of the personal choices a family might make to save money, there are some unavoidable costs that are baked into our financial and social systems. Overdraft fees, late fees on missed bills, high interest credit card fees, and payday lenders are just few ways that poverty begets higher expenses. The average payday loan borrower, who is usually short just a few hundred dollars between paychecks, ends up paying more than 300% interest on their initial amount. These companies make billions each year by offering people a necessary service that costs them an outrageously inflated price. Banks also find ways to capitalize on people without money. Many checking accounts require that a person carry a minimum balance and fine customers for every month they don't meet the requirement. And that's assuming a person even uses a bank. An estimated 8% of Americans don't use a bank, largely due to their low monthly income. As a result, they pay more money in fees at check cashing businesses or by using prepaid debit cards. In addition... To these fees and fines, a lack of funds in hand can also mean paying more for services and products, whether it's putting charges on a credit card and paying interest, or buying in smaller denominations and thus paying more per unit. There are hundreds of small ways that being cash poor can make it harder to save. The Washington Post reported on a study on this subject when researchers compared households with similar consumption rates shopping at comparable stores and controlling for two-ply TP, they found that the poor were less likely than wealthier households to buy bigger packages or to time their purchases to take advantage of sales. By failing to do so, they paid about 5.9% more per sheet of toilet paper, a little less than what they saved by buying cheaper brands in the first place, 8.8%. Poor folks don't buy single-use items because they never thought about buying in bulk. It's often because they literally don't have the money to do so or don't have a way to get bulk uh, items home. All right, we're going to take a bit of a music break, and we're back in just a bit. Hello, and welcome back to the Weekly Review. I'm joined by Leroy Moore, who is an activist, a poet, and a journalist. Leroy, thank you so much for calling in. Hey, thanks for having me. Yes, uh, so um, please feel free to introduce yourself and um, talk about, we can start talking about the book or any work you've done. Yeah, so I'm, uh, my name is Leroy Moore. I live in Berkeley. Um, I've been in the Bay since 91, originally from New York and Connecticut. 
Um, I'm a journalist, poet, activist, and um, the the new book that I'm talking about is um just came out last month. It's called Black Disabled Art History 101. So it's a children's book, but it could be for young adults. So it's a book talking about black disabled art history. Mm-hmm. From the blues to actors to painters to dancers. And yeah. Well, that sounds like a great history. That sounds like a really uh, interesting history. Excuse me? Oh, that sounds like a really interesting history. Yeah, yeah, you know, it's, it's my library. I've been collecting um, that kind of information on disabled people of color since I was about oh, 13 years old, you know, because I, I could not find it in the schools back in the 80s, yes. you know. They had no clue about disability studies and black history. Mm-hmm. So I started to do research on my own about it. Cool. So what did that research look like for you? Excuse me? Oh, sorry. Uh, what was that research, what was the process of research like for you? Well, you know, in the beginning, you know, the research was hard because, you know, back then in the 80s, there was no computers. Mm-hmm. So you literally had to go to the library. <laughs> so you had to, you know, go to places and talk to people <laughs> to get the information, you know? Yeah. Which I, I think, I think, I think, I think it's, you know, the one thing that's missing nowadays, you know, people can easily Google something and say, okay, I got it. But there's nothing more um, interesting than sitting down and talking to people. Yeah, absolutely. You know? Yeah, it's the, I mean, it's like the, the oldest uh, craft is the, the storytelling and hearing people's stories that get passed down through, through generations. Yeah, exactly, exactly, you know? Yeah. And I think also when you you know you speak with someone, you pick up so much more like their energy and their emotions too, which unfortunately one doesn't get from computers. Exactly. Yeah. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. So I imagine uh, it must have taken quite a while to to get all the information and all the interviews for this. Well, oh, yes and no. You know, it's 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 a part of my um, life. You know, so it's not like a a nine to five job. You know, it's <laughs> a part of my research and a part of the, my things that I love to do. So what happened is, um, about three years ago, um, a prof- two professors at University of San Francisco invited me and another disabled activist, um, Alice Wong, to do a presentation at the University of San Francisco. Mm -hmm. So we did our presentations about our work, and after the presentation, um, the professors came up to me and said, Leroy, you know, we, we we should work together and 
do a children's book. It's like, oh, yeah, I would love it. I would love to. Oh, yeah. That started the whole ball rolling. Mm-hmm. And so now, now it's out, and yeah, we have big plans for the book. We want to turn it, turn it into um, a curriculum for um, students. Oh, yeah. That sounds great. Yeah, so, so yeah, there's some, um, you know, things that's going on for next year for the book. You know, we we have a couple of readings coming up in December. Um, in the Bay Area, we have um, one in Berkeley that's coming up, I think, December 17th at... Um, the on uh, UC Berkeley's um, press bookstore. So we're doing one there, and we're doing another one in Richmond, okay. California. Oh, great! That's really great. Um, so Excuse me? oh, that's great. Um, so I was curious, are there any uh, stories or information that you heard that surprised you when you were speaking with people, or information that really sticks out? Um, I think, um, you know, what, what, what surprises me, and, you know, I should not be surprised is that these stories were nowhere in, 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 in schools even today, yeah. you know? Even today, when we have black studies, you know, um, queer studies, we have disability studies, you know, these stories that are in this book are not in, you know, these courses. So, you know, that was a little bit uh, of a downer, you know, it's like, God, still today, yes, you know, these stories are not in, in, in schools. You know, in, in here in California, a couple of years ago, um, a bill was passed that said you know, all high schools had to have um, diversity studies mm-hmm. that, that included, you know, queer history, disability history, and all that. But unfortunately, you know, that that's not really implemented as well mm. so although we have the law on the books it's still not implemented so we we hope that with this um book and hopefully the curriculum that will come out in 2018 that we could do a little bit to change that yeah it seems there's a, a lot of the diy and folks working to get things done and uh, instead of letting, I guess, the schools or the systems do it, we people end up having to do the do the work themselves. And to kind of... It's difficult for me to describe it. It just seems like that seems to be the way to do it. Yeah, you know, it's quite, it's quite sad that, you know, we still have to do it ourselves, you know? Mm-hmm. Especially when there's laws on the books. Yes, yes. You know, so it's it's you know, one one side is good because we you know when 
when we do it, that means it's, it's gonna be, you know, the, the right history. Right, right. So that's a good thing. Yes. You know. So there's some control over the information that's shared. Yeah. That's great. So what's the process like in terms of getting... Um... Oh, the Crip Hop. So Crip Hop Nation with a K. Mm-hmm. It's, um, this year, 2017, was our 10th anniversary. Mm-hmm. So we've been around for 10 years. Crip Hop is an international network of um, hip-hop and other musicians with disabilities. Mm-hmm. And um, it's really an education and advocacy kind of network. So it's not a label, you know, um, because it started with me and um, Keith Jones. And Keith Jones is also um, with a disability. But we were two activists that that, that loved hip-hop. And Keith Jones is a hip-hop artist, and I'm a poet. So we, we really wanted to have um, Crip Hop as an educational tool and, and also um, a platform to, pro, to profile hip-hop artists with disabilities. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, like visibility is, is so important. So I'm sure Yeah, it's... because, you know, the hip-hop industry and, and the whole music industry is so... Um, Ableist, you know, ableist is, you know, discrimination toward, you know, people with disabilities. Mm-hmm. Well, but if you, you know, sit down with the history of music, you will um, also realize that people with disabilities go back all the way to the blues. Oh, yeah. So it's you know it's nothing new. We we've always been there, mm-hmm. you know. But you know the industry is different from the you know the music um you know the music you know that that has been around. You know the industry is controlled by you know people that want to make an image. So yes. if you don't fit in that image, then you're not there. Sure. I'm wondering, is it similar at all to why some artists might be kind of talked into staying in the closet, for instance? Like, if they're they're queer-identified? Say, say that again? It, would it be similar to if folks who, like, artists who are queer um, might be encouraged to stay in the closet, like, in the music industry? Or entertainment industry? Um, yeah, yeah, I mean, people with disabilities, if I, um, heard the question right, you know, people with disabilities were, were, were used as entertainment pieces, you know, back in the day, you know, you can go to freak shows and circus and, you know, it was before TV, before computers, mm-hmm. and people with disabilities were forced to entertain. So if you really look at it that way, people with disabilities started the entertainment industry, you know. I see. Oh. Oh. I feel uh, constantly 
uh, just frustrated by humanity a lot of the time. And uh, especially people in positions of power and how people use others. I can't, I can't hear you. Oh, I was thinking that I'm just, I feel frustrated when I hear, not necessarily surprised, just frustrated of how humans have used others. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. In, definitely. So. Yeah, and, you know, it's so sad that we, we don't learn from our history. Yes. And I would imagine that part of it goes back to not being able to tell the history. So if folks aren't able to tell their own stories, then people aren't able to learn about it. Yeah, definitely, definitely, definitely. Um, yeah, so you mentioned that there will be some readings happening in Berkeley and then in Richmond this month? Yeah, Berkeley, December 17th, and Richmond is going to be December 15th. And, you know, I can, I can, um, email you that information. Sure, yeah, I'd be happy to provide the dates and the information to the listeners here. I'm having a hard time hearing you. Oh, sorry, I'm uh, leaving some uh, space to for you to speak. Um, yeah, so oh, is there anything else you'd like to share? Um, yeah, um, this, this Sunday, you know, I'm also, um, being a member of Poor Magazine. Yes, yes. And Poor Magazine has been around, uh, uh, since the early 90s in San Francisco. Now we're in Oakland. Mm -hmm. So Poor Magazine is having, um, in our kind of together in the downtown Oakland. And it's going to be this Sunday from 3 until 7, I think. Yeah. Okay. Great. Yeah, I've really, I've been to a few events that Poor Magazine has sponsored, and I've found, found them to be really enlightening, and I've learned a lot. Oh, cool. Thank you. Yeah, there was the one that was um, how not to call the cops and talking yeah. about... Oh, I yeah, 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 definitely. Yeah, yeah. We, we've been doing that workshop for the last two, three years now. Because mm -hmm. that's, that's one of um, our guidelines of Poor Magazine that we never call the cops. Yes, yes. So we, we go around teaching... Um, people how to do that because it's, it's hard it's very hard you know yeah so we we have a workshop that says you know never call the cops yeah i feel like it's growing up in this country one is indoctrinated and it's this idea that it's kind of people are brainwashed into believing that the cops are here to help and that if something goes wrong they're the people to call when in fact they end up harming people a lot of the time so yeah definitely definitely i've been around police brutality cases since 1989 mm. so i've seen come and go yes you know yeah 
I think I, I really think that Poor Magazine is, you know, really flipping the script on on how we um, how we as a community community can take back that power so we don't have to really rely on the police. Yes. You know? Yeah. Absolutely. I really, I really appreciate it, and I like it a lot because I feel I'm one of those people where I see that the system it doesn't work, and it's really frustrating. And then, in order for it to kind of crumble, we, you know, we need to create a new way of being and a new way of helping each other. And that can be, it can feel very daunting to not have something in place. And so, I really appreciate folks taking the time to really examine how can we create ways for a community to look out for each other. So we get to the point where calling the cops. For some of us, it's not an option, and to get to the point where, for many of us, for the rest of us, for everybody, it's we can move into a different way of being where cops are not even in the picture at all. Exactly, exactly, and that, and that, that takes a, a whole mind shift. Yes, you know? yeah. I think it's very easy to think about. Oh, something goes wrong. I want to like either outsource my problem or have someone else come in to solve it. And we, a lot of us, realize that having the state coming in is not going to help solve the problem at all. No. Yeah. 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 It's so true. You know, I, I do, I do work on, 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 on that with Crip Hop, you know, um, you know, because we, we have to switch the focus of, you know, from what cops need to what the communities, mm-hmm. you know. Because it's been years and years and years that I see a lot of resources and information and money going toward the cops. Yes. To, to do, you know, training or whatever. But those resources and those monies are not coming to the community. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. <sighs> yeah. Yeah, so we just have to change that focus. Definitely. Definitely. Well, I'm, I, f- I feel hopeful. I feel, you know, sad when I look at the world and also hopeful that more and more people are recognizing how things work and, you know, questioning what, what we've been taught and creating other ways to be and exist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I, I do I do see some um changes and some um rethinking going on, you know. I mean, for me when when I was involved you know, in the eighties and early nineties I was the the only disabled person, you know, going to police commissions and you know, talking to lawyers and all that stuff. But now I see more um, disabled activists taking up this issue, which is, which is a, a really good thing. Because, you know, I think it's over 70% of all cases of police brutality are people with disabilities. Ugh. So. Ugh. Oh, I feel like that really needs to be added into the, the the national conversation about police brutality as well. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, that, you know, that's, that, that's the thing that really frustrates me because a lot of these um, 
activists don't really mention disability. Mm-hmm. It, it, I, I just don't understand it when most of the cases are people with disabilities. So, you know, it starts, it doesn't start, but, you know, it's like first activists don't mention it. Then the lawyers don't mention it. Mm-hmm. Then the press don't mention it. So it's like we're totally erased from the whole, you know, um, situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, I mean, all the more reason for there to be alternatives. So when someone, if someone is having a, Oh, all the more reason. So if someone is having a mental health emergency for people to have alternatives to calling the police. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And I think, I think, I think, I think one of the reasons why it's so, it's so hard to change that focus because it, it comes with money. Mm. And every time the police gets more pain, they get more money. Uh. So we're, we're trying to take away that pain. So we're taking away that money and, and that's, that's the hardest thing. Yep. Ugh. You know? Ugh. It seems capitalism is the root of. Excuse me. Oh, capitalism seems to be the root of so many problems. Oh yeah, yeah. (laughs) And what's so interesting is that is that we make a job off of our pain. Mm. (laughs) Oh, so when once we get a grant to, to do something. You know, it's like it's institutionalized. So it doesn't, for me, it becomes a job. Yes. You know. (sighs) Wow, I'm thinking about those words. Uh, Say again? Oh, I'm thinking about the the words you've just said. It's really uh, just ringing in in my head right now, thinking about that. Hmm. Yeah, it's uh, just thinking about how how backwards a lot of things are, about how it's uh, you know, the folks who people pay to protect and serve end up causing the harm. Yeah. And um, it's up to the people to to change that. And hopefully, more and more people will will wake up and recognize what's happening. Say again. Hopefully, more and more people will begin to recognize how things work and create the the changes that we need and speak up about it. Yeah, you know, I I, I hope I hope more people really um you know challenge the system. I think especially now with. Donald Trump, you know, in office, we we have to really look at other, other, you know, other ways of doing things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes, everything. I mean, I'm all for building a totally different, a totally new world that's compute completely community run, and you know, something separate from the yeah. existing structure. Because the structure is and that's, and that's why I love what. You know, poor magazine is doing with homefulness. You know, it's um, 
you know, this whole um, way of living, you know, Poor Magazine, you know, taught um, people with wealth how to redistribute their their wealth. It really said that, you know, wealth hoarding is, is, is a disease, you know, mm-hmm. and it's, it's not good for anybody. Yes. So, so, you know, after teaching years and years on, on that, you know, Poor Magazine had a chance to have a group of, um, people that really, you know, put their, put, you know, put what they were saying on the line and help raise funds to, to get the property of what, what, what was going to be homefulness in East Oakland. Mm. So now we, you know, built the, the frame of the housing. You know, and that took a lot of work. It took money. It took a lot of, you know, going through the red tape of permits and all that stuff. Yes. So, so now we're, you know, have to raise another part of money just to put in the windows. You know, it's like okay, we, you know, got the land. We blessed the land. You know, we started on the foundation. Now we need the windows. Mm. So, even what's so interesting is that this homefulness is not like, you know, it's not like Section 8 housing where you have to wait 20 years for a house, you know. It's really off the grid, mm-hmm. you know. It's really, you know, done by and for, you know, poor families, mm-hmm. you know. Once again, it's people doing it for themselves. Exactly, exactly. Oh. So if uh, folks want to donate or find out more about uh, Poor Magazine, uh, folks can just check that out online, yes? Yeah, yeah, please donate, you know, because uh, like I said, you know, they, they're, we are, um, you know, trying to put in the windows and trying to finish the housing. So, you know, you, you can also come to... Like I said, this weekend, the 8th annual um, McCordy, you know, holiday, you know, art-making event. And that's only at the Impact, the Impact Hub. Mm-hmm. And that's 2323 Broadway in Oakland. Okay. And that's only this Sunday, 3 until 7. Once again, the Impact Hub. Two three two three Broadway, you know, and you know if you want to donate, just go to um, poormagazine.org and find our um, our fundraising page. Great, and uh, folks would like to get a copy of your book. I saw that it's available on Amazon through uh, Zochi Justice Press. Is there another place folks can purchase your book? Uh, say that again? I was looking for places uh, people could purchase your book, uh, Black Disabled Art History 101. Um, in addition to Amazon, are there other outlets people can buy it from? Yeah, yeah, it's on the publishing, the publisher page. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I try, I try to, I try, I try to stay away from Amazon. Good for you. you. Know? Yay. 
Yeah. So it's it's at the publisher page, and let me see if I can pull that up. It's on www.xochitjustice.org. Mm-hmm. Great. Excellent. Well, it looks very informative, and I'm very grateful that it's been written, and I'm sure many, many, many people are as well. Yeah, thank you for having me on. Yeah, thank you so much, and I uh, look forward to talking with you again in the new year. Okay, yeah, happy holidays. You too, Leroy. Uh, thanks again. Bye. Talk to you soon. Bye. All right, so big thank you to Leroy Moore for calling in. And we're having some difficulty here with the internet. I'm trying to pull up some more information to share. Um, um, we're actually ending, the show is ending in a few, about five minutes or so. So thank you so much for listening. Thank you, Leroy Moore, for for calling in. And I'm going to look up some more information on, since we're living the technological age and there's many, um, many gadgets in front of me, I'm going to look up. Uh, some more info here as well. Also wanted just to note the article I was reading before we spoke was um, from the website uh, everydayfeminism.com. I didn't get the chance to finish reading it. It's a pretty long one. And it came out on July 20th, 2017, and it was written by Hannah Brooks Olson. That's Hannah without a second H in it. And if you've never lived in poverty, stop telling poor people what they should do. So you can check that out there. Um, yes. And yeah, we're having some internet issues here. It's Mutiny Radio. It happens from time to time. Um, thank you again so much for listening. Thank you, Leroy Moore, for calling in. And I will get the name of the book in one moment so folks can check that out. And yeah, please do order the book from the publisher and not from Amazon. And it's called Black Disabled Art History 101. And again, Leroy mentioned that there will be a reading in Berkeley and then in Richmond, so please do check that out. And you can also order the the book from the publisher. Again, type in uh, Black Disabled Art History 101 by Leroy Moore Jr. So check that out. Yay. Cool. All right. Hope everyone has a good weekend, good week. Um, Keep fighting the good fight. Thanks for being you. Coming up next is Women's Magazine with Global Val, followed by the Common Thread Collective. Uh, you're listening to Mutiny Radio. If you would like to donate to the station, please do so at mutinyradio.fm. And also the show, we're looking for some more sponsors. Uh, Patreon.com slash Weekly Rev. Uh, even a dollar a month would be very helpful. So please do that if you can. Help spread the word. Have a great week. And we'll be back next week. Take care, everybody.
Where the long-range weapon or suicide bomb A wicked mind is a weapon of mass destruction Whether you're Soloway's son or BBC One This information is a weapon of mass destruction You could a Caucasian or a poor Asian Racism is a weapon of mass destruction Whether inflation or globalization Fear is a weapon of mass destruction My dad came into my room holding his hat I knew he was leaving He sat on my bed, told me some facts, son I have a duty calling on me You and your sister be brave, my little soldier And don't forget all I told you You're the mister of the house now, remember this And when you wake up in the morning, give your mama a kiss Then I had to say goodbye In the morning woke mama with the kiss on each eyelid Even though I'm only a kid Certain things can't be hit Mama grabbed me, held me like I was made to go But left her in the store was untold I said, Mama, it'll be alright When Daddy comes home tonight There's a long-range weapon or suicide bomb A wicked mind is a weapon of mass destruction Whether you're Soloway's son or BBC One This information is a weapon of mass destruction You could have Caucasian or a poor Asian Racism is a weapon of mass destruction Whether inflation or globalization Fear is a weapon of mass destruction Whether Halliburton and run or anyone greed Is a weapon of mass destruction We need to find courage Overcome inaction Is a weapon of mass destruction Inaction is a weapon of mass destruction Inaction is a weapon of mass destruction My story stops here Let's be clear, this scenario is happening everywhere 